You can have a seat. Good morning. Uh, Thanks for joining us here at Trinity and welcome. Whether you're here in person or whether you're joining us on our live stream, we're glad you decided to take some time out of your Sunday morning and worship the Lord with us. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. And this morning, it's going to be my privilege to lead us in our study of God's word together. Um, So if you have a copy of the Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 18. We're going to be in Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20 this morning. Uh, Here at Trinity, we love the Bible. We believe it's how God speaks to us, how he shows us, reveals to us who he is, how he shows us who we truly are, and and how we should relate and respond to him. And so we spend a great deal of our time together studying the Bible. Uh, Most often, we just go through a book of the Bible verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. And right now, that has us in the Gospel of Matthew, which is a story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so here we are in Matthew 18, uh, looking at some teaching that Jesus gives us this morning about the nature of conflict in the lives of Christians and in the church. I want to talk this morning about a bit of an uncomfortable truth, and that is this, that things break down. Things break down. That's a simple fact of life, right? That left to itself... By nature, order will slowly descend into chaos. Scientists observe this reality. And the second law of thermodynamics is the concept of entropy, that that systems tend to lose their order. Things tend to break down over time. Scientists can observe this. And we as Christians can observe it in the Bible. The Bible gives us not just the what, but the why. Why does this happen? Why does the world break down this way? Well, the reality is that the world is under the curse of God because of sin, because of our rebellion against God. Now, Jesus came to the earth to reverse this curse, to set things right, to remake the world in a new creation, free of the breakdowns that bring pain and hardship into our lives. And his death and resurrection started that process. And as Christians, we look forward to the day when he returns and brings everything to a glorious conclusion and completion. But in the meantime, we still live in a world where breakdowns are a fact of life. One group of people who know this reality, I would say more than most, is homeowners, right? If you own a home, you realize that stuff in a house breaks, Now, this reality affects renters too, right? Stuff breaks if you rent an apartment. But I'll I'll confess that I never really felt the weight and the sting of it until I owned my own home, right? When I was a renter, stuff broke down, but I just got to call somebody and they came and fixed it. And it didn't cost me anything at all. But when I bought my first house, suddenly all the stuff in the house that could break had invisible dollar signs hanging over it. And it, it had a lot more weight and fear and trepidation. But this morning, I want to let you know that I have figured out the perfect solution to this problem. I mean, it's genius. In fact, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to go on tour. I'm going to pitch the world this new solution to deal with things breaking in the home so that you don't have to live with that fear or that anxiety anymore. Here's my idea. Only buy a house where nothing breaks. It's genius, right? No, it's, it's not genius because you're thinking you don't live in reality. That sounds fantastic, but you can't just buy houses where nothing breaks because there are no houses where nothing breaks. 
Now, what does this have to do with our text this morning in Matthew 18, with this idea of conflict in the church? Well, the answer is this. When it comes to conflict in the church, I've noticed in my experience that a lot of Christians' plan for dealing with conflict in the church is basically not to buy houses, or basically to buy houses where nothing breaks. We look for a church that has no conflict. But what Jesus is going to tell us this morning is that conflict will happen in the church. We still live in a fallen world, and even we as redeemed sinners experience sin. Just as the world is being redeemed by God, but it still in the meantime is dealing with the curse, so are we as we're being redeemed by God. And so if we go about life, if we go about life in the church with this notion that I'm only going to buy a house where nothing breaks, what can end up happening is we go to a church, things are great for a time, but then conflict comes. And instead of dealing with it, instead of doing the hard, costly work of repairing, we just move on to another church. And then because things will continue to break, the cycle repeats itself over and over. Things break down in your home, in creation, and in the church, in relationships. But thankfully, Jesus gives us really detailed repair instructions, right? Repair instructions are fantastic. I've never been a particularly handy person, but I've learned with Google and YouTube, I can fix a lot of stuff around my house. Jesus is giving us the spiritual equivalent of the DIY videos on YouTube, the instructions that you find on Google. If you're willing to read and follow what he says to us this morning, he can turn absolutely anybody into a respectable DIYer. So that's the idea this morning. We're going to look at not only how to live in this house that God is building, a people for his own possession, but we're going to look at how to do kingdom repairs. How do we respond when things between Christians break down? So let's look at Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, and we will jump through it and explore it together. Starting in verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray as we study it together. Our good and gracious Father, thank you for a morning that we can gather together to hear your word, to study it, to be changed by it. As we come to you this morning, we ask humbly that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you'd give us, and what we are not you would make us by the power of your spirit to the praise of your glorious grace. In Christ's name, we ask these things. Amen. All right, so let's dive in right here in verse 15. Verse 15 sets the context for these instructions very clearly and simply. 
When do we follow these instructions? When is this text applicable to our lives? Well, it's applicable if your brother sins against you. That's the occasion that we're going to apply everything that we're about to learn this morning. If your brother sins against you. Now, a couple things we can learn right here off the top. First, what's the context? The context for these instructions is conflict between brothers. If your brother sins against you. In other words, the Bible uses this term for brother. It could mean brother or sister. We're talking about Christians in relationship together. So this is for when conflict happens between fellow Christians who are in relationship together. Now, the principles we're going to learn this morning can be applied in other circumstances as well, right? They're going to be useful and helpful in other cases, but it's not the context that Jesus is specifically addressing. He's addressing here conflict within the church, conflict between Christians. So let's say you've got a conflict between you and your next door neighbor, and they're not a Christian. They don't hold to these same principles. You can, you can apply these things, and they could be helpful to you, but it's not what we're talking about here, right? Like, if you open up your refrigerator and your dishwasher, they both have wires inside. And so there are some things you could learn from a dishwasher repair manual that might be helpful if you're fixing your fridge. But ultimately, it's about repairing a dishwasher. So as we think about this this morning, keep in mind that the context for these instructions is conflict between Christians. It'll have other applications, yes, but Jesus is talking about conflict in the church. And then what he's going to point out as well here right off the bat is that this scenario is going to happen. Conflict in the local church is going to happen. It's a reality, right? Now, you might say perhaps, well, he says, if your brother sins against you, not when your brother sins against you. Like, it's an if. And, and that's fair enough. But the fact that Jesus gives us these instructions in what to do in this eventuality suggests that it's going to happen, right? I'll give you an example. Let's say that you're driving down to the Gulf of Mexico. And I tell you, hey, when you're driving down the Gulf of Mexico, if you run into traffic, here's what you should do. Here's a nice little side route that you can take and it'll get you there on time. That, that, that would make sense because that's a possible and, and you might even say probable eventuality that you will face if you're driving to the Gulf of Mexico in the summertime. But if I told you, all right, you're driving to the Gulf of Mexico, if there are dinosaurs in the road, here's what you need to do. You'd look at me like I'm a crazy person. I don't tell you what to do if there's dinosaurs in the road because you're not going to find dinosaurs in the road on your way to the Gulf of Mexico unless you're passing Dinosaur World down by Cave City and one of them falls over. Now, the fact that Jesus is addressing this here and he says, if your brother sins against you, this is him telling us it's going to happen. And when it happens, here's how you react and respond to it. Now, on the one hand, that's a sad reality, right? Conflict in the church is going to happen. It's sad, it's difficult, it hurts. But on the other hand, this is a comforting reality that Jesus would tell us and prepare us for what to do when it comes upon us, right? It means we can react in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. We don't have to be caught off guard when conflict happens. We don't have to freak out. We don't have to run away as if something unprecedented and strange is happening. We can know what to do. We can know how to move forward. So, what should you do if your brother or sister sins against you, if they wrong you? Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
What should you do if your brother or sister sins against you? You should go to your brother or your sister. When someone wrongs you in the church, you should go and tell him or tell her, just the two of you, right? Between you and him alone. It's a simple instruction. It's not an easy instruction, but it's a simple instruction. All of us can understand exactly what Jesus is saying right here. And I'm convinced from biblical conviction, because Jesus knows what he's talking about. That's a pretty good rule of thumb when we're living life. And from practical experience, that if we followed just this simple command in verse 15, it would fix 90% of the broken relationships in churches. Just this verse right here. Go and tell your brother, tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now think about what the alternative paths are. Think about what the paths that we tend to follow are instead of this command. What are the things, what are the reactions that we usually have instead of following the simple command that Jesus gives us? Well, often when someone wrongs us, we talk to other people about it instead of the person who actually wronged us. Now, there's a lot of different ways that this could go down. Sometimes we'll couch this in sanctified language, right? Whether to convince others or to convince ourselves that what we're doing is right. We might say that, you know, I'm just looking for some advice on what happened with this friend over here. Or or we ask somebody to pray for a given situation. Or maybe, hey, would you intervene on my behalf because you guys are really close and you know each other well? But either way, we're dodging what Jesus has called us to actually do. New Testament author and scholar Craig Blomberg uh, said, It frequently seems as if the whole world knows of someone's grievances against us before we are personally approached. I'm sure all of us could tell a story in here of when that's been the case. When it seems like you find out from everybody else that someone has a problem with you before they actually talk to you themselves. And it is devastating to a relationship. It doesn't bring about restoration and forgiveness and healing. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying that to go to someone else when you're wronged is never appropriate in any situation. There are exceptions to this rule that we understand from taking in the whole counsel of God, such as if you've suffered serious abuse that's crossed into the criminal realm, it is fully appropriate to involve the authorities instead of feeling you have to go to your offender right away. This text is talking about sins in view here, not crimes. And Jesus speaks this to a first century Jewish culture that understands that God's law differentiates between the two. So there are exceptions to this rule. However, I'll say this. Don't let the exceptions keep you from sitting under the weight of this in the 98% of the circumstances where this text is directly appropriate. If you come to me for pastoral counsel about how someone has wronged you, 98% of the time, my counsel to you is going to be to end the conversation and say, go and deal with it with that person and work it out. And if it goes badly, and it might, if it goes badly, come back to me and then I'll get involved. And we'll talk later about what that process looks like. But when we involve others in a conflict before going to the one who has caused offense, We're escalating and widening the scope of the conflict at a time when there's still a high chance that misunderstanding, miscommunication, 
or inadvertent offense is what's at the core of what's happened. We will likely compound the hurt that comes from the conflict instead of healing and restoring it. So often when someone wrongs us, we'll talk to others about it rather than the person who's wronged us. That's one bad way that we can go. Sometimes when someone wrongs us, we don't say anything at all about it, and we privately stew on it instead. This can come for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it comes from a fear of confrontation. And that's perfectly understandable, right? Because confrontation is no fun. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. But it's also good and necessary for us as Christians. I came across this quote in my studies this week from Douglas Sean O'Donnell, who is a pastor. And what he said just made me sit and pause and, and reflect on this. Listen to this. He says, every time I've been confronted, it has been a humbling experience. It makes you feel small, but small, as we've learned, is the appropriate size to get into the kingdom of God, as well as to move up in it. Thus, if confrontation can lead to that kind of smallness, it's something that we all, from time to time, very well need. Think about our recent studies in Matthew's gospel about Jesus just in last week's text saying we have to become like little children if we're going to enter the kingdom of God. Smallness, humility, that's what Jesus is trying to bring about in us. And so if confrontation and hard conversations when we sin against each other, if it can bring about that kind of smallness and that kind of humility, then I need it, and so do you. So let's not be afraid of conflict and confrontation when it, the time comes where it has to happen in the local church. Sometimes it comes from a fear of confrontation Sometimes it comes from self-righteousness, let's be honest. Sometimes it comes from self-righteousness because I want to wait for the person who's wronged me to come to me. And I'm going to sit here on my nice little proud high horse until they humble themselves and ask for forgiveness, until they recognize the error of their ways. But that's not what Jesus tells us to do here. He puts the weight on the one who's offended. He says, you go and tell. Don't wait for them to come groveling back. Sometimes the, the reluctance to say something comes from a misguided belief that it's somehow more loving to hold your peace and not say anything about it. Now, in this case, there's actually a nugget of truth here, right? There's a nugget of truth that sometimes we, it is a good and loving thing to just overlook an offense and move on with life, right? You think of 1 Peter 4.8 where it says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. In relationships that are strong and loving, you don't necessarily feel the need to confront the other person over every small offense. Sometimes your love for them will just cause you to, to you know, brush over it, move on, and it never becomes an issue again. Like, that's good and healthy. Good, strong marriages, that happens, Right? Like, we don't feel the need to hold every little thing and turn it into a conflict. Sometimes because you love your spouse, you just say, you know what, I'm not even going to worry about it. We're going to let it slide and just move on. So how do you know when to let something slide and when to deal with it? If it, if it is appropriate sometimes to let it slide, but sometimes you need to go to your brother, how do you know the difference? Well, I'll say this. It, it's good and loving to overlook an offense and move on. It's not good and loving to not confront someone while you sit and stew with resentment and bitterness privately. That's the difference. So I would say this. How do you tell the difference? 
If something wrongs you and you're not sure whether to say something about it, give it a day. Maybe two tops. If it passes from your mind, then great. Just let it go. Move on. But if it's still there, if it's still sticking with you, bothering you, changing how you interact or how you think about the other person, then deal with it immediately. Follow Jesus' command here to go and tell. Right? Once you notice that you have a leaky pipe in your house, it's not going to get better by not dealing with it. Right? You can just ignore it because you don't want to pay the cost or the work that's going to come with the repair. But the longer you let it go, the bigger problem you're ultimately going to have. And relationships are the same way. When you allow distance to creep into a relationship because of a resentment over a wrong that hasn't been dealt with, you'll likely find that a year later, there's just no relationship anymore. It's gone. It's dead. Give it a day. If it still is there, deal with it immediately and ruthlessly. Follow Jesus' command. Go to your brother. Jesus says, go to the offending person and tell him his fault, just the two of you. Think of the implications here of go and tell. This command assumes personal interaction, right? Go and tell. Go and have this conversation to the maximum extent practicable. Have these conversations face-to-face. To the maximum extent possible. Have these hard conversations face-to-face in person. Don't send a text. Don't send an email. Try to avoid phone calls. Although sometimes a phone call is going to be the best you can do, depending on circumstances and, and how things come about. But always strive for the most personal means possible. It will be more uncomfortable that way, but it will be worth it in the long run when it minimizes misunderstanding and there's something about looking into the other person's eyes that makes you want to reconcile more than it makes you want to be right. It's easy to hide behind that shield when you're not sitting face to face with somebody. Try to do it in the most personal face-to-face means possible. Go and tell. And again, keep in mind, this is a command. This isn't Jesus just saying, you know, this is kind of some advice I'd like to give. This is Jesus commanding us to deal with our conflicts in this way, which means if you don't do this, if you hold it in and stew on it, or if you go talk to other people about it instead of that person, now the one who offended you doesn't just have a sin problem. Now you have a sin problem as well. This is a command Like I said earlier, are there exceptions? Yes, but don't let the exceptions keep you from sitting under the weight of this in 98% of the situations where you need to go and you need to tell your brother his fault and work it out and deal with it. And what's the goal of this conversation? The goal is repentance and reconciliation, right? If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The objective is to gain your brother to fix what's broken, to restore and reconcile the relationship. And that that has some implications as well. Number one, it changes the way you go about going to your brother and telling him his fault. If there's any Seinfeld fans here, this, this isn't the Festivus airing of grievances where you get to walk in and be like, I got a lot of problems with you people. That's not how you bring about reconciliation. 
you're going to try to gain the relationship, to try to restore things with your brother or with your sister. And so you want to go in with that attitude. And if they listen to you, if he listens to you, you will have gained your brother. Now, the word in Greek here that we translate as listens to you, this isn't just that he physically hears the words coming out of your mouth, but it has the sense that, that he's properly heard and understood the wrong that has happened, right? Which would then lead to repentance and restoration. That's the goal. And if that happens, you have gained your brother. You've preserved the relationship, but what you'll ultimately find is you've strengthened it in most cases. Because relationships grow when we work through conflict together. When we come out the other side, when we've dealt with the pain of sin, extended grace and forgiveness, the resulting relationship will be stronger than it was before. And the conversation could go a lot of different ways. Sometimes the offending person will realize what they did, they'll admit wrong, and they'll ask for forgiveness. And you can freely extend it. Sometimes you'll realize that misunderstanding actually played a big part. That what happened wasn't even what you thought initially had been meant to happen. And there might be some confusion that led to hurt on both sides. Sometimes you might even end up asking for forgiveness yourself. When you hear the other side of the story and you realize maybe I did something that injured this relationship as well. Most of the time, in my experience, the end result is going to be a combination of those things. It's never as clean coming out as we thought it would be going in. Because sin is messy. Our hearts are fallen. But the goal is repentance and restoration. The goal is to gain your brother, to gain your sister back. That is what we go to do. So go to your brother. Again, 90% of the time, this is the fix. This is what brings about restoration. And to allay some of your other fears... It might not be 90% of my sermon, but it's a good chunk of it. So if you think, gosh, he's only through one verse, we're going to be here all afternoon. I promise we're, we're going to be a lot speedier from here on out. But this is where so much importance lies. This is the hard first step that we are afraid to take, that we don't want to take. But by God's grace, Jesus tells us we have to take it because this is how repairs happen in the kingdom. This is how relationships are restored and preserved and strengthened. But what if you do this? And it doesn't go well. What if the person refuses to admit wrong? What if they dismiss your concerns? What if they even double down on their actions? Well, Jesus gives us a next step in verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So next, we involve other counsel. We widen the circle. We take one or two others along with you. And Jesus roots this command in the requirement of the Old Testament law that charges of wrongdoing be backed by multiple witnesses, right? If you go back and look at God's law, when a crime was committed, it was always, you don't take the word of just one person because then it's difficult to establish somebody's guilt. It becomes a, a, a one-to-one. He says, let charges be established by multiple witnesses witnesses and the same principles at play here take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses what's the implication here 
maybe the person's in the wrong and we need more people to help bring that to light. Maybe you actually are in the wrong and you just can't see it. And when you bring the one or two others, they say, you know, the person has a point. Maybe you're not seeing this very clearly. But bringing in a, one or two others as mediators will help to, to bear this out, will help us to see clearly what needs to happen in the conflict. So this is where it's right and it's helpful to talk to others about what's going on. Ideally, things could be solved just between the two of you, but if that doesn't happen, and sometimes it doesn't, then trusted counsel can be a help. Right? So I said back in 98% of the cases, if you come to me asking for pastoral counsel about a conflict, I'm going to stop the conversation and say, if you haven't gone to them, go to them, and then come back and see me if it goes bad. Here is where you come back and see me. And if it goes bad, then I would love to step in and help kind of unwind this and figure this out. Let's talk together. Let's get somebody else involved. Let's widen the circle. And notice this, the one or two others could be all sorts of people, right? It just says take one or two others along. It doesn't say they have to be a pastor or a community group leader. It, there's no requirements. It could be a pastor. It could be a trusted mentor. It could just be a mutual friend or two. Right? There's no requirement here for who this has to be. You're just widening the circle, getting other counsel involved. Now, contextually, it should be other Christians. It should be other people who share the same commitment to these principles that you do. But beyond that, the door is wide open. It helps if it can be someone who both parties trust. Right? Because a lot of times when, we're, when we sin and we're in the wrong, we get defensive. And we think everybody's out to get us. And so it, it can be easy to throw out that charge of, you're just ganging up on me now. It's best if it can be someone or someones that both parties trust. And in the local church, that's usually possible to get somebody who fits that bill. Not always, but usually. So pursue that as much as humanly possible when you're taking your one or two others with you. Because again, what's the goal? restoration and reconciliation. You're not looking to just get some, some extra ammo in your back pocket to beat them down. You're looking to win and gain your brother. The goal is the same, that they would listen to you, repentance and restoration. Now, if the first command to go to your brother, if I'm right in that it would fix 90% of our broken relationships in the church, I'm going to say that this second one would probably take care of another 8%. Probably would get most of the remaining cases. But even if I'm right, that still leaves 2%. 2% where things are still broken after a one-on-one -on -one conversation, after bringing other people involved. But thankfully, Jesus still has another command. If your brother won't listen to the counsel of multiple other people, and again, this assumes that those other people actually agree with your assessment of the situation and don't say, actually, you need to examine yourself. But if you won't listen to the counsel of multiple other people, then it's time to involve the church. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So involve the church at this point. Now, this is the part of the process that we usually think of under the term church discipline. But... 
in, in reality, church discipline has actually been going on for two verses now, right? Church discipline, the, the means of protecting the unity and the purity of the church, is not just something that pastors do when things get really, really bad. It's something that everyday Christians do all the time. We live in fellowship with each other. We work through conflict together. Everyone is called to church discipline. That, that term is a lot broader than we usually think about. But sometimes it gets to this point. Sometimes people refuse to repent. Sometimes people double down on their wrong. And this is the part that people often see as scary. And, and it is, let's be honest, to a degree. Nobody, nobody likes conflict and confrontation, so nobody likes it when it gets to this level of severity. Some could even see this process as mean-spirited or vindictive. And maybe in some cases that has gone that way. But that's not the idea here. What this should be when Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is the culmination of the efforts that have been made so far to humbly point out someone's sin and plead with them to repent and to be restored to fellowship. Right? Notice the condition of continuing further at each step. If he refuses to listen, if he refuses to listen to them. Getting to this point and, and ultimately putting someone out of fellowship from the church is not something that vindictive leaders do on a whim because they are just tired of dealing with someone. It's a decision ultimately that gets made by the offender, that gets made by the person who is sinning. After being repeatedly confronted by increasing evidence of sin, they continue to refuse to listen and respond to those who love them and are, excuse me, and are lovingly reaching out to them. They refuse to listen. And so we involve the church. Now, Jesus doesn't give us specifics on what this looks like. It's going to involve the leadership of the church. It's going to involve us looking and, and trying to encourage someone to turn back, to repent, to, to be restored. So there's a lot of latitude that Jesus gives on how we go about this process, but the idea is it happens. Bring it before the church. Put the whole weight of the church in seeking to get this person to recognize what they have done. And what happens if they refuse to listen even to the unified voice of the whole church? Right? Do you see the, the um, exasperation probably isn't the right word, but when Jesus says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, right? This is the last best shot. We're bringing the whole body together to say, please, do you see what's going on in your life? If they refuse to listen even to the church, then what? Let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Right, we got to think about this one because this is not language that we really use anymore, Gentile or tax collector. What does this mean? What does this look like? You know, Gentiles and tax collectors were not the favorite groups of people to first century Israelites that Jesus is talking to here. So does this mean that, you know, if, if someone doesn't listen even to the church, that we, now we can kind of look down on them and treat them like scum? Is, is that what Jesus is saying? That, that, okay, once you've exhausted all of this, now they're a nobody to you. Don't worry about them anymore. No, it's not what it means. Gentiles and tax collectors were two groups of people who were seen as outside the covenant of faith in first century Israel. 
Gentiles because they were not in the circle of God's people. Tax collectors because they had voluntarily put themselves outside the covenant of faith. What Jesus is saying here is if they refuse to listen to you one-on-one, and they refuse to listen to a few others who come and plead with them, and they refuse to listen even to the whole voice of the church, and they double down on their actions and their sin, then you should treat them like they're not a Christian because they're probably not, right? That's the gravity of the situation. 1 John 2.4 says this. It says, whoever says, I know God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. That's a sharp word, right? And it doesn't mean that if we sin at all, we're, we're not Christians. Because John in his same letter will say, if anyone says they have no sin, then they're lying and the truth is not in them. This doesn't mean we're perfect, but what it does mean is if you're genuinely changed by Jesus Christ, you might sin, you will sin, but you'll also repent. Christians don't double down and walk in their sin against multiple people and the whole church coming together to say, please turn back. And so if they refuse to listen even to the church, assume that they're not a Christian because more than likely they're not. By every action and indication you can see, they're proclaiming themselves to be outside of the faith. But it's worth reflecting here. How do we treat non-Christians? How does Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? The people of his day would look down on them, would treat them as outcasts, as nobodies. But Jesus reaches out and he heals Gentiles. Jesus invites tax collectors, like the author of this gospel, come and follow me. When someone gets to this point, it's going to break the familiar bonds of church fellowship that we have with them. That is a reality. But it doesn't mean that we just, you know, shun, you're outside of my circle. I'm not having anything to do with you ever again. Preach the gospel to people. Reach out. Continue to plead with them to trust Christ. Show them the gospel in your love and concern for them, even after they've spurned you and spurned everyone who comes around you. Show and tell them of Christ and urge them to repent and trust in him. It's here at this last verse in verse 17 that we get a sense of the gravity of what's going on here. This is weighty, weighty stuff. The process of confrontation and repentance and restoration in the church, this stuff has eternal implications. And that's where we get into verse 18. Now, verse 18 might seem out of left field. It's not language that we usually use. And so we come to it and it seems a little bit puzzling, but it's making a specific point. Jesus says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What's he saying here? He's saying that earthly relationships reflect kingdom realities. Now, what happens in the here and now as we do these things that Jesus has told us to do has eternal kingdom of God implications. What Jesus is saying is that when the church grants or withholds forgiveness in the way he's just outlined here, God does the same thing. God does the same thing. 
right? When the church grants or withholds forgiveness, that's what he means by this binding and loosing. If you bind or loose, if you grant or withhold forgiveness, then what's done on earth is going to be done in heaven. Now, that sounds strange perhaps to us, something we don't think about. But what it doesn't, it, what does it not mean? It doesn't mean that God is just rubber stamping anything a church does. And a church could put somebody out, they could do a great injustice to somebody, and God says, well, I actually don't think it should have gone that way. But the church did it, so all right, no forgiveness for you. That's, that's not what it means. What it means is this. When God's people follow God's directions that we've just seen in verses 15 through 17, the end result of that process has God's seal of approval. Our, our scholar Craig Blomberg put it this way. He says, the actions of Christian discipline following God's guidelines have God's endorsement. So God says, as you go about these things, I will put my stamp on the end result. We're not just playing at this stuff. It matters. The church matters. The conversations you're having with each other on a weekly basis matter. Your faithfulness to do what Jesus tells you to do here in verses 15 through 17 matters. And it will matter forever. These things matter because Jesus gives his people real authority. Jesus gives his people real authority. And this is just, it, it, it'll blow your mind if you really sit and think about it. Because here's the thing. God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. We talk about that a lot around here, that God is in charge of everything. He's all-powerful. He's created all things. He's in control of all things. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. But he is not the sovereign ruler of the universe in the same way that Kim Jong-un is the sovereign ruler of North Korea. In that God does not hoard and jealously guard his power and keep everybody in the dark because he has to protect some fragile sense of pride. He is a God, he is a sovereign ruler who shares his authority with his people, who doesn't hoard light and keep it to himself, but gives it to all. He calls us in to be a part of his family. God shares real authority with his people. When his people gather in his name, what does it mean to gather in his name? It means to act consistently with what he's revealed to us about his name, his character, his desires. When people gather in his name, he is with us and he grants his power and authority to our actions, right? That's what he's saying in verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, verse 20, you've probably heard before. We use that verse a lot, right? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And usually we don't do, use it in context. Usually it's not attached to this. Usually it's a tagline for why you should come to prayer meeting, right? Because prayer meeting matters. And prayer meeting does matter. And that truth is applicable to the fact that prayer meeting matters. But what Jesus is saying when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. He's saying, when you do this hard, heartbreaking work of striving for reconciliation in the church, I am right there with you. And I will back you up. And that is incredible. That our God, would share his divine authority with fallen, sinful creatures like us. 
and he'd give us the step-by-step, hey, here's how you get from A to Z. And if you do this, I am there. And I will back up what you do. I will stand with you. I will put my power over you. When we gather in his name, he grants us his power and his authority to our actions. So let's be faithful. Let's do what he's called us to do. Let's take this seriously, church. Let's take it seriously in our lives and our relationships with one another. How do we make application of this text? The initial application is pretty straightforward. Again, not necessarily easy, but it's straightforward. Is there a brother or sister in Christ whom you are harboring bitterness or resentment against over a wrong that you've never confronted them about? How do you apply this text? Go to your brother. Go to your sister. It could be someone in this local church. Now, understand, this is not Pastor DJ subtweeting at everybody because I know something's going on and I'm really going to say this and no. But in a group of people of this size, this is normal. Conflict will happen. So it could be someone in this room that you've got this bitterness and resentment and you need to deal with it. It could be someone outside this church, a brother or sister that goes to another church, but you're still in regular fellowship with and there's a brokenness to that relationship. Don't let their sin problem become your sin problem because you won't deal with it. Don't let the leaky pipe turn into a flooded basement. Is there a conflict you have with another Christian that you haven't been able to resolve? You've, you've done, I've gone to them, we've had that conversation, it's not gone well and I don't know where to go from here. Find your one or two others who can help you do the work of restoring the relationship. Don't give up after a bad confrontation. I know it's hard. I know everything in you will want to just say, I gave it my best shot. I'm not dealing with this anymore. Power through that. Be faithful and obedient to what Jesus has called. Find one or two others. Is there a conflict that you don't know where to go next? You need to talk to someone about a problem you're having. Our pastoral team would love to sit down and and give you some counsel. right? If you would say, I want to do this. I see it's good and it's right, but I don't know how. Come talk to me, talk to Pastor Dave, talk to Pastor Todd, talk to a friend who brought you here. Let's have a conversation. The conversation might be as simple as telling you, you need to go and talk to your brother if you haven't done that yet, okay? But we'll have a conversation. Maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe it's one of those extenuating circumstances. But come see us, send us a message. Let's talk, let's have that conversation. Maybe you need us to be your one or two others. Maybe we can help you find a good one or two others that could be helpful in healing the relationship. Whatever that could be, let's pursue it. And then maybe you're hearing this as an outsider to Christianity looking in. Maybe you joined us on the live stream this morning. And maybe this talk of restoration and forgiveness sounds really attractive in a world that's full of brokenness and shattered relationships. And you think, that sounds... I never heard this before. It sounds good. I'm a little skeptical at how realistic it is, but it sounds good at least. If that's you, we would love to talk to you about Jesus Christ and why he can make this attractive restoration and healing and forgiveness. He can make it a reality. 
We would love to sit down with you and explain why that is, who he is, what he came and did, why his death on a cross 2,000 years ago and his resurrection from the dead really makes a difference in your relationships today. We'd love to have that conversation with you. And if you've got doubts, if you've got questions, that's fantastic. We would love to answer them and to talk, excuse me, and to talk through them. Let's, let's start that conversation. Come see one of us after the service. Drop us a message on Facebook, on our, our email, elders at trinitycrestwood.com, whatever the case may be. Let's start that conversation. We would love to introduce you to Jesus Christ and show you how by finding reconciliation and forgiveness with God through him, you can begin that process of restoration and reconciliation with the people around you. Because God is faithful and he will do it. He can do it. And that's good news for us and for our world. Let's pray.